0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Who, who will ever forget those deep emotional images printed on our minds, our hearts, wave after wave of brave firefighters and policemen, including an elderly chaplain as they stormed the Twin Towers there in New York City that tragic morning, September the 11th, 2001. If you were around and you saw it, and you experienced it, I dare say it'll be one of those episodes in your life you'll never forget. Particularly those brave rescue volunteers or, or, or servants as they rushed into that inferno. You know, you may ask, what would possess a person to to rush into virtual towering infernos knowing that there was a good chance you wouldn't come out alive? What would possess a person to do such a risky thing? And I would say it has to do with a calling. All of those firefighters and all of those policemen and all of those people that rushed in, I don't think they had a lot of second thoughts. I don't think they were weighing out the options. I believe that the calling that was represented by the uniforms that they wore that day and the emergency gear that they wore that day said it all. Because, you see, their calling was about saving lives not preserving their own. And as I think about that, people with such a calling are people that are driven by deep conviction and strong, serious commitment and unimaginable courage. You know, as we have been following, the, particularly in the latter parts of the book of Acts, as we've been looking at the Apostle Paul. And I always like to think of the Apostle Paul as being a great example of what the Christian life is really all about. And in Paul's life, as we are looking in the book of Acts, the this, the, the Acts of the Apostle, this historical account of the early church and the and the missionary movement of the gospel given to us so meticulously by the gospel writer Luke, We learn a lot about the person of Paul. And then to fill in, you can read any of his epistles. And that will just kind of fill in all the other parts of his life to help you to understand what makes up a true man or woman of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, if you haven't already. Some of you don't have to guess where we are. You just pick up where you got it marked the last time. And we're in chapter 21. And... As we look at the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there, there are lessons that I think that are worth gleaning, that if we just read through the book of Acts, as some of us have, no doubt, and just read through and just say, oh yeah, that was nice, that was interesting, that was inspiring, but don't take the time to, and here's where the farmer comes out in me, sometimes we do shallow plowing, where you just kind of turn the soil at the surface, just to get it ready to sow something that has shallow roots. But then, once in a while, you need to drop the plow deep. And you better have a strong mule, or nowadays, a strong uh, tractor. Because the plow is digging way down into the subsoil to pull up nutrients and and, and minerals that that were never at the surface. And I believe there are things that we can, if we'll just go a little slower and drop our spiritual plows to to let them dig down deep, we'll find some things deeper in the Word of God that maybe just a surface reading would pass right over. And in these first 16 verses of chapter 21, I want you to see with me, Something about this great man of faith, the apostle Paul, and I want you to chat, I want to challenge each of you to consider the fact that a genuine faith with relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a genuine faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ comes complete with a calling. If you're a child of God, there is a calling on your life given by the Father Himself. Now, you may not be an apostle. You're not, because they're all died and gone to heaven now. You may not be called as a missionary. You may not be called as a pastor. But let me tell you something. Every Christian has a calling placed on their life because God has a purpose for every child of God. And with that calling, I promise you, there will be a need for the same elements that we'll see in the Apostle Paul. There must be conviction. There must be commitment. And to different varying degrees, courage. And so, go with me there to chapter 21 in the book of Acts as we pick up Paul's journey. Now, just to go back and recap very quickly, the apostle has completed his three missionary journeys, which is not a small feat in and of itself. And along the way, in his journeys through Galatia, and his journeys expanded into Asia, and his journeys into Europe, Paul suffered along the way. These were not leisure, tourist trips. These were hard-working, suffering trips. Paul paid a great price to carry the gospel to areas of the world that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so he's completed the three missionary journeys, and yet there's still a, a call on his heart. Paul is feeling driven to go to Jerusalem now. And so let's pick up in chapter 21. Now, back in verse in chapter 20, remember, as it closed out that chapter, Paul, making his way to Jerusalem, coming down the coast of Asia, stopping at just about every port, port, stopped at the port of Miletus, and he had sent word to the elders in Ephesus to come and meet him. This would be the last time they'd probably see him on this side of eternity. He says, you'll never see my face again. And this is tearing them up because they loved the Apostle Paul. But in that very emotional, heartfelt gathering there, Paul poured his heart out in one last instructional meeting with the elders. And now he's ready to, to leave for Miletus and make his way on down the coast and eventually over to Syria and then to Jerusalem. So in verse 1 of chapter 21, Now it came to pass then when, that when we had departed from them and set sail... And, and let me just stop. See, we can miss a lot. Luke uses the, the verb departed at talking about Paul leaving the elders in Miletus at the port getting ready to get on the ship and head on further in his journey. The, the verb that Luke uses to depart means literally to tear apart. Literally, the elders of the of the church in Ephesus were so torn, so hurt, they they couldn't stand the thought of saying goodbye to to Paul and him going to to what might be a, a, a dangerous situation or a deadly situation, and and so literally they were having to tear the, the arms of the elders off of Paul and and say, "We got to say goodbye. The ship is leaving." So you've been in situations. Maybe parents, when you take your young person off to college and you're just torn up, you know, leaving them there, your baby, and they're going to be at college now, and, you know, and they're trying to get away from mom and she's clinging to them like an octopus, you know. Just that tearing away. That that I like that. Luke captures that. He says, you know, and when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes, Now, if you were riding the ship with Paul and the others as you came into the port of of Rhodes, you would see a massive statue. It was called the Colossus, a gigantic statue of a man. In fact, it was so huge, it would be like coming into New York City on a ship, and you see what? The Statue of Liberty. What an amazing and impressive sight to see that giant lady up there with that torch. And so as you came into the port, there was the Colossus. It was so huge that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, you know, there were some things along the way. So as they came into the port of Rhodes and from there to Patera. And and, and look at verse 2. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. Now, now again, what they're doing up to this point on their journey is they're hugging the coast. Paul and his, his companions are riding on small boats that don't like to get away from the shore, sight of the shore. So they're coming down the coastline in eyeshot of the, of the coast. And, and each journey is about a day's length because a, a, a seasoned sailor knows that out there on the Mediterranean Sea, you have the, the, the strong, blustery north winds that carry you along during the day. But guess what? When sundown happens, those winds die down. No need to be out there on a sailboat when you're not going anywhere. So they sail all day, pull into a port, spend the night, and then they pick up and go. So this is what is happening all the way down to verse 3. But then a transition. They're going to they're get a bigger boat now. A ship. This is a cruiser. It's got cabins and probably rooms where people can sleep and that kind of thing. And this one will take you on across the open waters of the Mediterranean. This one won't be stopping every day. It'll be about a five-day journey. I know when I made my trip... Back in the fall, that just still amazes me how God would uh, set me up for world travel like that. And I'm not a world traveler, but it just amazed me, I did all that traveling. I think we flew about 16,000 miles in like 10 days. But anyway, um, going, going from Greensboro up to, to, to Washington, D.C., and, and Glenn for the life I mean, uh, Mark for the life of me, I can't remember if it was USA or I, it was an airline, I know that. <laughs> It was one of those small jets, you know, where you have two seats on this side, two seats on that side, and you really shouldn't get up because you're going to bump into somebody. So, you know, we rode that small plane up to D.C. and 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 got off the airplane and made my way over to the... And I remember going down the causeway to the get up to the gate to the jet that was going to take us to Frankfurt, Germany. This would fly all night over the Atlantic Ocean. And I was looking at that jet. Now, that was a big kahunga. I, I don't know if that's Greek for something. But anyway, I mean, there's a big plane. I mean, you know, I had like three seats on, on one side, maybe four or five in the middle, three over here. In fact, on the way over there, and, and the Lord knows I'm, I'm claustrophobic. And I was praying, and said, Lord, you know, I'm going to be sitting in this airplane all night long, riding all the way to Frankfurt, Germany, and, and, you know, and I'm claustrophobic, and please don't put me between two big people or whatever. And, you know, and guess what? I was the only one on my road over on that side. So I looked around, you know, as we got going, cruising pretty good. And I said, you know what? As long as I keep my seatbelt on, I can stretch out. So I just raised the arm, rest. Is that legal, Mark? Okay. And I kept my seatbelt on, stretched out, and slept like a baby. I tell you, God is so good. But anyway, where was I? Paul's on the big ship now. And, and so now they're making their way from, um, from, from Patera uh, over to Phoenicia. And he says, as they were sailing in verse three we had sighted Cyprus, which is the island there, but you'll notice they didn't go into port there. He says we passed it or Luke's telling this. he says we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload a cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul uh, they told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem and you'll see this happening. Paul's getting these warnings from the Spirit of God through people about danger that lies ahead for him in Jerusalem. And then in verse 5, Luke goes on to say, And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children, till we were out, on, out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Isn't that great? And you, you see this, these are people that Paul... What, you know, he didn't know them, but, but they knew that he was Paul. He gathered with them, fellowshiped with them, and then as they had warned him, and I'm sure they're trying to dissuade Paul. Paul, in our spirit, we just know that danger waits for you in Jerusalem. Is there any way that you cannot go up to Jerusalem? And, and, and I'm sure that Paul, you know, thanked them, but but he proceeded. And we'll talk about that. But, but the fact is, they loved Paul so much that like the Ephesian elders, they went with him all the way to the ship. When men, women, their, their children, all home families. Can you imagine the scene as they all knelt there on the sands of the shore? And oh, can you imagine the prayer that they prayed over their beloved, the Apostle Paul, as he was getting on the ship to continue on his journey? And what a powerful scene that is. Verse 6, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our journey from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now let's just pause there for, because I want you to see something. As we talk about Paul, we talk about his calling and his calling to follow the Lord no matter what. Our calling in Christ first comes and requires conviction. And let me just share with you how the dictionary defines conviction. Conviction is a strong belief or opinion. It's a feeling of being sure that what you believe or say is true. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary said this, conviction presupposes a clear picture. It's so real in your mind. You're so deeply convicted that what you believe is actually true. You can you can see it. Now let me ask you this. How many of you all believe that heaven is a real place? Just a few? Alright, now your hands are coming on up there. This is said a trick question? How many of you have been there? Written a book. <laughs> Please say no. Sure we believe heaven is real. Yes, we've not been there, but we have a faith conviction. A conviction by faith that heaven is just as real as the home that you'll go back to when you leave this place of worship today. And you see, it's because of our strong faith conviction that God gives us Through the eyes of faith, you see those things as if they were actually in front of you. They're so real. And the things that Paul was experiencing in his call from the Lord, Paul knew that they were real. But Paul's not the only one. Paul's faith conviction actually is built on a long legacy of faith convictions. If you go back in the Old Testament and you see how many great men and women of faith. I was thinking about last week when... Pastor Tim was bringing that beautiful message from a beautiful love story, the book of Ruth. And you talk about a woman of, of faith and of, a woman of conviction. Here she was, a Moabite. and She was, you know, going to go back to a foreign land with people she's never seen with a mother-in-law. And yet she knew that the God of the Hebrews was the true God, opposed to her own God. And her faith gave her the conviction that I'm going back there because there's the only way for real hope. She followed that. But but Ruth is just one of many. You think about Noah, his faith conviction. He was convinced that the flood that God told him about was indeed coming. You think about Abraham, his faith convinced him that that God was going to give him and his barren wife Sarah so many descendants that they would be a mighty nation. Listen, his faith convinced him that it was actually real before it actually happened. Think about Moses. His faith convinced him that God would indeed deliver his people out of bondage, take them through the wilderness, and bring them into a wonderful promised land. Though he'd never been there, nor had any one of his generation been to where they were supposed to be going. But Moses had conviction. Joshua had conviction. His faith convinced him that not only would God take the people of Israel into the promised land, but deliver the land that God told Abraham his people would actually possess Joshua was was a man of great conviction, faith conviction. David, that shepherd boy, standing in front of a, a giant by the name of Goliath, he was convinced that God was going to kill that giant through him. And in doing so, glorify the holy name of God. Think about Daniel. Daniel was a man of great conviction. Daniel's faith convinced him that God would protect him even in a den with hungry, roaring lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three Hebrew young men were men of conviction. They knew. They said it to King Nebuchadnezzar. If you have to throw us in the furnace, go ahead and throw us in the furnace because we're convicted in our hearts. Our faith tells us that even in a fiery furnace, our God will be with us. And so you see, Paul was simply adding his testimony to this long legacy of faith and convictions that his ancestors had left for him. And for Paul, it was a matter of following his conviction that Jesus Christ was saying to him all along the way, despite the warnings, Jesus had said, you will go to Jerusalem. And there you will do a great work. And Paul was convicted. He knew in his heart that he was supposed to take the offering that had been collected by the Gentile churches for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus was leading Paul back there despite the risk. To do what? To accomplish the will of God. You see, the success of any Christian's mission, including especially the Apostle Paul, the success of every Christian's mission depends upon it being originated in deep faith conviction. In order for God's people to succeed in anything that God calls us to do, we must be a people of conviction. We must be convinced by our faith that God is calling us to do His will and His work. And so we have to depend upon that. That is what Paul was dependent upon. And so Paul leaves as he moves from port to port as he goes along, you'll see that there are people that are warning him all along the way. Now, I want to remind you of something. There was no gun at Paul's head. There was no soldier escorting him to Jerusalem. There was no one saying to Paul, You've got to go. In fact, there were a number of people, as you saw, at different ports, back at that, that, uh, Miletus, the, the Ephesian elders. I'm sure were trying to dissuade him from going further. As Paul stopped at the other ports, you know, that tired, the the Christians were trying to warn him and and telling him not to go. Listen, people would have been happy. They would have rejoiced if Paul says, you know what? I I just don't think this trip to Jerusalem really is a good thing. I, I think I would put it on hold. And they would have rejoiced. But not Paul because, you see, he was driven by a deep conviction that this is what God wanted him to do. Paul, you may recall in in Philippians in chapter 2 verse 13, he says, It is God who works in you to know and to do of his good pleasure. Dear friend, let me tell you something. If you're in the word of God and you're praying and you're open to the spirit of God speaking to your heart, you won't have to roll any dice or play any kind of game of chance or do any kind of incantation or ritual or chant or something to find the will of God. It's not mysterious. God is constantly telling us from His Word, by His Holy Spirit, He'll let you know what His will is. The problem is, so many times we're so distracted that we don't hear His will. We don't know His will. So what things do you see from God's Holy Word that God wants you to to do? I'm sure you would agree with me that it's God's will that every person that He chooses will be genuinely saved, will be truly born again will become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, daily seeking to share Jesus with those who who don't know Him, so that they can know Him the way that you know Him. I'm sure you would agree that God wants us all to do that. I'm sure you would agree that it's God's will that all of us take time to study the Word of God, to understand the Scriptures, to be open to the Spirit and commune with God, to communicate with God, to pray and let God speak to your heart. I mean, if I were doing a poll, surely you would all agree with me. Yeah, that's God's will. I'm sure that all of you would agree that God wants all of His people, all of the Christians, to be actively involved in the local church. where they'll assemble together. Doesn't the Word of God say, Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some? He says, come together. And when you come together, encourage one another. When you come together, worship the Lord. When you come together, do kingdom work together. There's no mystery about what God wants His people to do while we're on this earth. He wants us to be regularly engaged in worshiping Him, serving Him, studying His scriptures, talking to Him. He wants us to give sacrificially of our time and our energy and our resources to advance His kingdom. These are things that God, you know, you don't have to wonder, is this God's will? (laughs) Bruh, that's a, that's a given. It's God's will and you know the scripture tells us that He says, as I am holy, so shall you be holy. God convicts our heart from the day that we're saved that He wants you to abandon sin, to turn your back on sin, to make strides towards living a holy life, to represent a holy God. Your life should be filled with examples of righteousness, not worldliness. The first thing that people ought to see about you and me as Christians is the fact that we're different from the world, that we are children of God. Why, you say, preacher, why are you nailing on so many of these bases? We all know this. Well, how many of you are doing it on a consistent basis? I'm convinced that the majority of church members in, in churches across America today are not even doing the basic requirements of God's will for His people. I'm convinced that most of the people whose names are on church rolls across this land, they are playing church and not being the church. (laughs) You don't know the power that I possess as being the holder of the letters of the sign out on 109. See, those letters are kept under protection and only certain people have access to them. So the message out on the sign reflects great authority. Not really. I'm the only one to climb up on that stepladder in blazing, blustery weather to put a message up there. But you don't know how tempted I was just a couple of weeks ago to put this message out on the sign. Some of you are probably just, I'm sure the pastors says, real Christians don't play church. Real Christians don't play church. I'm not criticizing other churches but it saddens my heart. And so many people like my, one of my neighbors, I asked him, how was your service at Easter last Sunday? Oh, oh, Charlie was fantastic. Oh my goodness. We had the biggest choir we've ever heard. And my goodness, we, we had such an orchestra. Of course we had to rent a bunch of them. We didn't have enough to fill the orchestra, so we did a rental orchestra. But, but oh, oh, the music, they almost like, like Howard on Andy Griffith, you know, the barber. Oh, who's, who's so, oh, so amazing and beautiful. Didn't say a word about the message. Didn't say a thing about the text. What what about the Word of God? You see, so many churches are content to follow the cultural's lead. Church means go and play church. Sit back and be entertained. Have a little something done to you make you feel good and go on and live your life like you normally do. Folks, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not Christianity based on conviction of what God is calling. Listen, Paul understood He understood that the the call to be a child of God, to be a follower of Christ, is a life and death calling. It's it's involved with sacrifice and unselfishness. Oh, listen, our motivation for following and serving the Lord had better not come from our pride or our desire to have the praise of people. It wasn't for Paul. Paul. Why did Paul, why was he so bent to go to Jerusalem knowing that they, they, they had things waiting on him that were going to be painful? Why was he so bent to go to Jerusalem? Well, I'll tell you this, Paul wasn't compelled to go up to Jerusalem because of an insatiable desire to be a martyr. There's martyrs on every corner back in that day. Paul, Paul wasn't motivated to go up to Jerusalem because of, of, of just a desire to aggravate the Jews. He was doing that all along, throughout the whole missionary experience. Paul wasn't driven to go up to Jerusalem because he had some kind of a personal vendetta against the Sanhedrin. No, 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 no. Don't miss the point. Paul was driven to go to Jerusalem where he felt pretty sure he was going to suffer because of a conviction on his heart. I said there was no gun at the back of his head or bow and arrow or whatever. But you might as well say there was a spiritual gun at the back of his head and Jesus was holding the trigger. Paul knew. When Jesus says, do something, you better do it. Why do you do what you do? If you're doing something. I hope you're not doing it to please other people. I hope you're not doing it to impress other people so other people will just goo and gag about oh how wonderful you are and how great you are because you do this and you do that. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter one, verse ten. I think every Christian ought to have this etched. If you're if you're active in doing and, and doing for the kingdom serving, then you ought to know Galatians one ten, for Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, guess what? I'm not even a servant of Christ any longer. So for heaven's sakes, don't do church and kingdom work so that other people will brag about you and gloat about you. Oh no, your motivation should be the same as Paul's motivation and it is a deep conviction to serve the Lord and do what God has called you to do. And the Lord will give us that. Our motivation. If your motivation for serving the Lord is anything other than a deep faith conviction, it will ultimately fail. Because it will be shallow and it won't carry you along. I need to move along because our calling in Christ not only requires conviction, but our calling in Christ requires commitment. Oh, this is a bad word. It's kind of like Mani G. Krabs. I know I'm dating myself back in the early 60s, television when it was black and white the Dobie Gillis show, and there was a beatnik. How many of you young people know what a beatnik is? And I don't, I don't, I not blame you. You'd have to Google it. But see, that was the, Those are the people that were kind of tuned out of culture back then. And most, if you guys, you had little goat tees, and you were kind of the ones that went around banging on bongos and singing weird songs. and, and but there was one there. A, a, a lovable character by the name of Manny Crabs. and Maynard, Maynard just kind of bummed off of people and he just didn't, as a beatnik, he didn't believe in working. So if you were in his presence and you said the word work, he would say work. He's like, you know, spider, snake. So, so, you know, the word commitment almost has that, that flavor in people's mouths today. You say commitment, people say, oh, don't, don't, don't talk. We don't like to talk commitment. You know, don't give me that, you know, For better, for worse, for rich or poor, sickness and health and all. No, 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 no. We pledge ourselves as long as we're in love. Go easy on that commitment thing. Folks, listen, you cannot be a child of God. You can't serve in the kingdom of God without commitment. And our faith conviction will motivate us, but it's our commitment out of that same faith that will make it happen. Listen to the definition of commitment. Commitment is a promise to do or give something, to be loyal to someone or, or something, to work hard to do something, commitment. Listen, good example, or at least the contemporary example. You'd all agree that that the men's uh, Duke men's basketball team, y'all have heard of them, um, little prep school down the road. Uh, but, but anyway, you, you'd all agree that the the Duke men's basketball team and the Yukon women's basketball teams, both are, are shining examples of commitment. From the beginning of the season and even preseason, they made a commitment. They had to. They had a conviction. In their heart, they realized, we can do this thing. We can do this thing. We can see the championship trophy. They had a conviction, but that conviction drove them to a commitment. The commitment was, we're going to be at every practice. We're going to give it our best. We're not going to be daunted by it. No matter who we play, we're going to take on the toughest schedule. We're going to go all the way. They were committed all the way. You know, Paul was committed. Look back in Acts chapter 20, just the previous chapter, and look at verse 22. You you sense a bit of Paul's commitment, and this is when he's talking to the elders from Ephesus. In verse 22 he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. Uh, you know what, I don't think I would go to a vacation spot if most of the tourist, you know, guides and people that were, you know, vacation planners... Look, you're going to probably suffer down there. you probably get sunburned, by a lot of mosquitoes, and chances are, you know, riptide and everything. Food will probably poison you, but you know, it's cheap. I, I think I'd find another place to go on vacation. Of course, Paul wasn't looking for a vacation, but the fact is, Paul knew. He knew. The Spirit had already said, it's trouble in Jerusalem. But do you see anything in there where Paul says, oh, y'all pray with me. I'm trying to decide if I need to go to Jerusalem. (laughs) He'd already made a commitment. He'd already bought. Listen, I don't know how they booked in advance back then for ships. But I guarantee you, he had his itinerary printed all the way down the coastline of Asia, over to, to Tyre, and into Jerusalem. Why? Because he made a commitment. It was going to happen. It was going to happen. And that's what Paul was saying. I think about And Paul's commitment to go to Jerusalem is very reminiscent of the commitment exhibited by our Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry during that Easter week. You know, even back in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus is talking to Jewish leaders who, by the way, hated His guts and were threatening to kill Him. He knew that. And they they couldn't figure this guy out. Why do you continue to persist to go against the grain, don't you know we hate you? don't you I'm paraphrasing a little bit here folks, but, but basically you know they're, they're trying to figure him out. why are you continuing to persist on this pattern that's taking you against the grain of, 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 of a traditional religion? And Jesus said it simply in John chapter John chapter five verse 19, he said to that group, most assuredly, I say to you. The Son can do nothing on His own, but what He sees the Father do. And whatever He does, the Son will do in like manner. Jesus had told His disciples earlier at the Samaritan well, where He met the woman there, and, and, and they had gone to get food, and they came back, and, they, and and He said, I've already eaten, basically. And they said, well, where'd you get any food? <laughs> we don't say any McDonald's wrappers, you know? You say you've already eaten, where'd you get any food? We didn't bring you anything. But Jesus said something very pointed and I think we ought to understand to, un- to help us to appreciate the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, My food is to do the will of the One who sent Me. And Jesus modeled perfect commitment In the garden of Gethsemane, when he fell down in agony on his face before God the Father, that hours from the cross and said, Oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Nothing would deter the Son of God from His deep commitment to carry out the plan of redemption that He and the Father and the Holy Spirit had set into place and into motion the day that Adam and Eve chose to sin and sin came upon the world and the curse of damnation fell upon humankind. Jesus knew before that point that He had made a commitment to go all the way to Calvary and nothing would deter him from that suffice it to say that nothing would deter Paul from going to, to to Jerusalem and we see that despite the ominous clouds of danger that are continually increasingly building on the horizon the further he goes the more ominous things get the darker it looks over Jerusalem and, and yet he continues with his commitment You you get a sense of this when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're we're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in us. And going further in verse 13, But since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul was 100% committed to the, to the mission that God had called him to. Not even all the dangers and not all, all the threats could cause him. To change his mind. How committed are you? How how committed are you to the Lord Jesus Christ? Would it be a shameful thing to understand in reality that you may be more committed to some social club or some group of friends or even to your family than you are to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does Jesus expect commitment from people of this era? What's the level of your commitment to live the life that Christ redeemed you to live? How committed are you? How committed are you to do the things that God's Word has convinced you you ought to do? How committed are you to be a witness to Him no matter who He may take you to? Listen. Ask yourself: Have I signed on to the Lord's call, a commitment expressed in Luke's Gospel, chapter nine, verse twenty-three, when Jesus says, "If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me"? Ladies and gentlemen, the the, the Christian life, the call to the Christian life, the calling of the Christian life, is not a cakewalk. It's not some joy ride. It's a it's a journey of faith and commitment and sacrifice and whatever God may call you to do. You may recall we sang a little praise chorus years ago, and this probably predates some of the younger people too, but we'd sing this and we'd all gather around and maybe a campfire and we'd all be kind of mushy, you know, gooey with emotions. And we'd sing, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. How many Christians live those words even today? How many well-meaning Christians Starting out in their faith relationship with the Lord made all kinds of commitments, but then when the hardship settled in, and when the ostracism began, and when people began to leave you from social circles and things like that, all of a sudden you say, no, nah, I can't take it. I got to go back." Let me move along because I want you to understand that having a strong faith conviction and an unyielding commitment is great, but realize to complete the triangle of the calling, the requirements of the calling. Our calling in Christ requires courage. The Lord had previously warned His disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 16 through 22. I won't go back, but you can go back and read there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 16 through 22. Jesus basically told His disciples, listen, I, I, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Let me tell you something, I've never thought about being a sheep. They're supposed to be pretty dumb creatures. Cute, but dumb. But but I, I can I can assure you that given the opportunity, if a sheep is in a fold and and, and, the, and the master opens up the gate and the sheep can go out of the fold if he wants to, but he looks out there and there's two dozen very hungry, mean looking fang shelling wolves, and the sheep will probably say, Oh, I think I'll stay in here with Harry and Joe and the rest of them. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm sending you out. I'm pushing you out of the fold. I'm propelling you out into a world that is made up of hungry wolves and you'll be like a sheep. Folks, that takes courage. It takes courage to follow Christ. Paul knew that. And out of that conviction that he had and the commitment that he had arose a God-given level of courage that's unrivaled by the world today. Just imagine, I know you're familiar with that passage over in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You don't have to turn back there because it'll ring like a bell. But just imagine, just imagine, if you will, a ready, very young, inexperienced shepherd boy standing out there all alone on a battlefield with nothing but a sling and five smooth stones. And he's staring into the glaring eyes of a nine-foot-tall giant of a man who is fully clad in armor. I mean, complete with bronze knee guards. Armor that weighs as much as 125 pounds. Shoot, I'd have to drag that onto the battlefield, much less wear it. He's got a javelin poised between his shoulder blades and a sheath. This giant does. He's carrying a spear so big that the head of it, just the head of the spear, weighs some 16 pounds. And in the other hand, he's got a sword. And to boot, he's got an armor bearer next to him with backup armor in case he needs some more. Just imagine... And to make matters worse, this big giant of a man is yelling down, pouring forth, curses upon this little boy. Cursing him like a dog. Cursing and and, and belittling the Israeli army behind him. And worst of all, out of his filthy Philistine mouth, pours forth gut-wrenching blasphemies against the God of this shepherd boy, and the Israelites. Just imagine. You're that shepherd boy in that situation. The Scripture tells us that David ran. And some of y'all saying, I would too, man. I'd be booking it, brother. And the, no, he ran. With the sling swinging. Ran towards the giant who was cursing him, blaspheming his God. And as he's running, I want you to hear what he yelled to that big giant. He says, You come against me with a dagger and a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the creation, the one who has victory over every adversary, and you will die today. And with that, he let that stone go and brothers and sisters as if it were guided by a laser. That smooth stone found its way all the way up to that tall giant's forehead and sank into his head. And you know the rest of the story. What could possess a young, inexperienced shepherd boy to do such a thing? Where did he find such courage? I'll tell you where he found his courage. Where you'll find your courage when you're facing troubles and trials and hardship. It's in your faith in God. David knew that giant was going to die that day. He was convicted in his heart that that giant had to die that day. He was committed to making sure that giant died that day. And he had the courage to know that his God would bring that giant down. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect example of courage. He was a meek man. But don't you dare confuse meek with weak. Someone described meekness as power under control. Why shucks, when he got up off of his face, his knees, and stood up and began to walk out of the garden of Gethsemane that night, he knew the soldiers were there. He knew his betrayer was there. He knew what lie ahead for him. But you're talking about courage. Stepping out of that garden and walking into the midst of that murderous bunch. Let me tell you something. He didn't flinch not, a, not, not once. And when even he said, he asked, who are you looking for? He knew who they were looking for, but he wanted to hear them say it. And they said, Jesus. And even when he said his divine name in his answer, he says, I... Am. Ladies and gentlemen, John's Gospel says those big burly soldiers were knocked down. fell back. Just the power of His name. Listen, you understand the power that He possessed in His person at that point? He could have slayed every one of them. He could have destroyed the whole Roman army and Rome with it and the Caesar and every evil person on the face of the earth. He had the power to do so. But He realized that was not the plan. Jesus, wow! What courage Paul demonstrated! Great courage as he moved forward. Look with me, verse eight. On the next day, this is chapter twenty-one, lest you forgot. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philippi the uh, Philip the evangelist. Of Philip the evangelist. I think it's interesting, Philip's ministry began because he was running from Paul, Saul, of Darsus. Isn't it ironic that he gets to Caesarea and who's, who's going to host Paul? Philip. That's just the way God works. Verse 9, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And doesn't say much more about that, the fact that they had the gift of prophecy. But look at verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus, and you may recall back in chapter 11, verse 28, this same prophet came on the scene, told the church leaders there was going to be a terrible famine, and sure enough it occurred. Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. Now follow along. He's painted a picture. Bound his hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt. Everybody looks at Paul. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now look at verse 12. Don't miss this. Who's writing this? Luke. Luke. Verse 12. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Listen, Luke's in on the game now. Luke said, oh, I can't take it, Paul. Please don't go. Timothy jumps in. Silas jumps in. All the Gentile representatives from the churches, everybody is, is now saying, oh, Paul, please, please, what more do you want to see? It's going to be disastrous if you go to Jerusalem. <laughs> look at verse 13. Paul answered, what, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? <laughs> he basically said, look, hey, you, you're killing me. <laughs> you, it's hard enough. You're you're killing me with all this grief and everything. He says, what do you mean by all this? You're breaking my heart. For I am ready. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. Despite the graphic warnings of the prophet Agabus, Paul remained courageous. He remained strong in in his resolve. He knew what was lying out there for him. And his courage... Hold